Hey everybody, we are moving into our second topic for period three. We're going to talk about the American Revolution, and we're also going to look at why it might be a bad idea to drink with a German on Christmas Eve. So going back to the article that we started this unit with, Carol Birkin's article on the myths of the American Revolution, I want to remind you of, of one of the, the key points she made in that article is that most Americans typically when they think about the American Revolution are... Um, thinking about how everybody joined in willingly together and fought this thing. And, and George Washington was a national here from the get-go and we won the war single-handedly. So those are going to be some things that we're going to unpack. The, those myths we're going to unpack as we go through this, this topic. We start with our first big question from the reading guide, which deals with how did the Enlightenment, how did Thomas Paine's common sense, and how did Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence influence colonial attitudes about government? And with each one, then we want to think about the impact it would have on changing how the colonists thought about government, how they set up government. So let's start with the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is, is kind of an intellectual movement that is happening throughout Europe, and it's, and it's happening over a pretty broad span of time. So uh, this is something that's happening in the 1600s and 1700s. And uh, some trends that we're going to see is it, it, with a lot of the different writers of the Enlightenment is that they're going to emphasize the power of what we call reason. And what they mean by reason is that it is, uh, it's like the opposite of superstition, is that human beings are capable of using reason, uh, and they can use it to accomplish perfection. They don't need to wait for heaven or God to accomplish perfection. They don't need to wait for miracles. They can obtain perfection on earth by searching for truth and by creating progress themselves. So in a way, this was the Enlightenment was kind of a challenge to religion in a lot of elements. I, w I wouldn't say all the Enlightenment thinkers were atheists, but they were definitely challenging orthodox religious beliefs at the time, uh, that the only way society could make progress was through some religious miracle or through God's hand. But these Enlightenment thinkers were, th were saying, if you just study something enough, and, and you use your own reason and you discover the truths behind something, you should be able to achieve progress. And if we apply this to government, what that means is it would be possible for human beings themselves to maybe figure out what is the best form of government. Could human beings create maybe a perfect model form of government? And, and a true enlightenment thinker would say, yes, using reason, they should be able to do that. They were rational meaning they didn't really believe in superstition. They didn't really believe in miracles. They ridiculed those who believe in superstition and who obeyed tradition. They, they attacked the idea of monarchy. Uh, Diderot, this is a famous Enlightenment thinker. He's the guy who created the encyclopedia. Uh, he had a famous quote where he said, men will never be free till the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest. Whoa, that's a pretty serious quote there. And it's not just him. There are a lot of Enlightenment thinkers who are questioning the traditional defense of monarchy. So traditionally, most people had defended the idea of monarchy by saying, you know, like, what right does this family have? What right does a Habsburg family have to govern Spain? The usual defense was, well, God had selected that family. It was the divine rule of king argument. And, the, and the, usually the church had supported that and condone that and sanction that. And then the Enlightenment philosophers are coming along and questioning that and saying, well, I'm not sure if God is maybe doing the best job picking these families. 
you know, at first maybe there might be a good king or two, but then you get to his son or his grandson or great-great-grandchild who's maybe not so great. Like, let's remember what happens with the Spanish. Take a look at Charles II, the inbred, the El Hechizado, the guy that couldn't even chew his own food because of generations of inbreeding that had happened in Spain. And so Enlightenment thinkers were saying, you know, God's not doing so great uh, at picking kings. He's about as good at picking kings as the Detroit Lions are at playing football. Just does not have the best track record here. So they were attacking the idea of monarchy. That's a, that's a major threat. And they're saying, you know, it is possible for human beings to maybe envision and to use reason to think of a different form of government. And what they would emphasize, and the image you're seeing here on the left of slide four, that's John Locke. And John Locke would probably be the most influential Enlightenment thinker on American government. He came up with this idea that all human beings are born in a state of nature with certain rights. Uh, and he would say these rights are life, liberty, and property. And that when you enter into a society and you decide to surrender some control over your life to a government to oversee you, that the government's job, their contract, is to protect those rights, those rights that you're born with, your right to your life, your liberty, and property, the things, you know, if you put your work into something that you own that thing. Okay, so governments must earn their citizens' respect. This was kind of a, a crazy notion at the time. The way people were hearing this in the 1700s, there was often a lot of analogies made to like family life and the relationship between parents and children. And so when you, an Enlightenment thinker might say, it, it's the government's job to earn the respect of their citizens, or the citizens must consent to being governed by the government. That's like saying a parent must re receive consent from a child in order to parent. That just, it sounds crazy uh, to people at the time. You know, I, are you kidding? I have to receive the consent of my five-year-old before I discipline my five-year-old? That doesn't sound... That doesn't sound right, but that was the belief of the Enlightenment thinkers that, in, not in the family realm, but in the, in the government realm, that a government had to receive consent. The people were the sovereign. That's where the sovereignty lies. It was within the people. And so if there's going to be a government, the people are going to have to surrender their sovereignty, some of their sovereignty, to that government. So the government has to receive that consent. There has to be a social contract back and forth um, between the people and their government. <clears throat> so those are some ideas coming out of the Enlightenment. John Locke was a British philosopher. Uh, and then this whole transatlantic exchange of these, these British colonists reading all these British publications, those ideas would wander over into the Americas. Okay, uh, the next big work that you want to be familiar with is Thomas Paine, a.k.a. T. Paine, uh, his famous little pamphlet called Common Sense. It's a pretty short little pamphlet. You could probably read it in a couple hours. And it was widely read. It was published in January of 1776. Timeline-wise, the, the colonists had started shooting at the British soldiers back in April of 1775. It was the Battle of Lexington and Concord. So there had been battles and the war had been going on for a few months here. But, but still, the colonies and the Continental Congress had not been sure if they yet wanted to declare independence. And Thomas Paine comes out in January 1776 with just this shot over the bow saying, we have to do it. It, it would be idiotic for this vast continent to continue to be governed by a tiny little island across an ocean. 
So this this work became very popular. He was again attacking the notion of a of a monarchy being the best form of government. He was emphasizing the power of reason and people should use reason to figure out a new form of government. And they should be able to use reason to figure out that God was not doing a great job at picking monarchs. Uh, and uh, case in point, that they were not happy with the, with the British monarch at that time. So this thing sold a lot of copies. A lot of people read this. It didn't take long to read. It was way different than a lot of other political pamphlets because the language that Thomas Paine used was written in a common language, easy for everybody to read. I'm going to actually have you read an excerpt of it when we get to our next activity in the, uh, in the Moodle sequence here. So he directly attacked monarchy. That's a definite influence of the Enlightenment. He talked about the virtues of a, of a republic or a republican form of government. That's a definite influence of the Enlightenment about how uh, government should receive consent of the people and that sovereignty lies within the people. Uh, people should elect their own representatives. They shouldn't have God pick uh, a person for them. They should have a say in that. Uh, and so this is a turning point because it convinces a lot of people who were hesitant there, there were a lot of reluctant people in the colonies at this time. We were not sure if independence was the best idea. Thomas Paine really um, appealed to those people. The, the, the common sense, the intended audience was these people who were reluctant. And it was persuasive. So he told them all the reasons why it would be a bad idea to stay with Britain and why declaring independence would, would not turn out that bad. Uh, so he definitely... Um, did a great job with that because what would happen is that a few months down the road, the delegates at the Continental Congress would finally agree to declare independence. And so in July of 1776, uh, there, is, there is finally this declaration that is issued to the public. It, Thomas Jefferson had been working on it, had been writing it. Uh, the Continental Congress was, re, was able to review his draft, make a few tweaks to it. And they they had a final draft ready on July 2nd. They voted on it and said, we like it. And then July 4th, signed their names to it. Um, <clears throat> side note, John Adams, one of the guys who was really pushing for independence early on, wrote in his journal that July 2nd would remain a date that would live in infamy, that he thought July 2nd would be celebrated as the Independence Day because that's the day that the vote was taken to initially like adopt Jefferson's draft. And then they spent two days tweaking the language and then signed a final draft on the 4th. So... There we go. We end up celebrating the day on July 4th. Um, what did Jefferson do? How was it influenced by the Enlightenment? Well, again, directly attacking a king, directly attacking the monarch, which was different than a lot of the other political documents before this. A lot of the petitions that had been sent over to Britain were complaining about Parliament and the actions of Parliament. And Jefferson, if we re you're also going to read the Declaration, and you're going to find out that Jefferson was attacking the king and blaming the king for everything. There was no more discussion about the rights of Englishmen. Jefferson was referring to natural rights that all human beings have. Uh, and this was something that was more expansive and broad than we would have seen in other political pamphlets prior to this. He wrote this, the first intended audience was the American people. He, the Continental Congress wanted this read publicly. They, they had many different towns across the country read this in public squares so that the American people could hear what was happening and the decision that was made and why the decision was made to break up uh, with the British. In New York City, the, the crowd got so excited about this news that they marched. There, there was a statue of the king, and they, they, they took the statue of the king, they pulled it down, they destroyed it, they chopped it up, uh, a metal statue, and then they melted the metal, turned it into bullets. They were later then used to fire at the British. That's how excited the American public got about the publication of this document. The second intended audience was international. 
the colonies were begging for international help. But a lot of the other countries, France, Spain, Dutch, the Netherlands, were saying, you know, are you guys going to be actually a country or are you going to remain 13 different colonies here? Because if you're going to remain 13 different colonies, you know, we're going to have to send over like 13 different ambassadors and work out 13 different deals. And, and that's not that doesn't interest us. We don't want to do that. So until the colonies would be willing to declare independence and declare themselves to be a nation, no European country was going to negotiate with them. So in a sense, this is kind of like the birth certificate of the United States of America here. You might be able to hear my dog barking in the background. I apologize for that. We're going to soldier on anyway. Uh, there's some, uh, we're in the first Wednesday of the month here in Mankato, and they're doing the sirens. So I'm recording it during the uh, the one o'clock sirens, and that's driving my dog crazy. Uh, it is common to see on stimulus-based multiple-choice questions excerpts from either Thomas Paine or Thomas Jefferson from Common Sense or from the Declaration of Independence, and then get asked questions uh, about the connections between these sources and the Enlightenment. So just remember that connection. Okay, let's look at the advantages of the British and the advantages of the Americans going into the war. If we take a look at things from the British point of view, the British had the strongest army in the world. They had the strongest navy. They, they just won one of the biggest wars in world history, the French and Indian War. They were also going to hire a bunch of outsiders to come do the fighting for them. All these Germans uh, from one region in Germany called Hesse. So the, the uh, Germans at the time were called Hessians. The, the area they were going into... They had a lot of supporters. There was a lot of loyalists in the colonies. The colonies were very divided. John Adams estimated that a third of the colonists were patriots in support of the revolution. A third were loyalists and did not want to declare independence. And then a third were kind of in between. So they were, they were heading into a divided place where they had a lot of supporters. Another advantage the British had, they were going to fight an enemy that lived mainly along the coast. So it would be like today if the United States decided to go to war with Australia that war would be over very quickly because almost all Australians live right along the coast and the United States has the world's strongest navy. And if you have a navy, it is mainly useful if you're fighting somebody who is located next to a coastline. And so if you think about Boston and New York City and Philadelphia and Charleston, Norfolk, Virginia, all those places could easily be attacked uh, by the British Navy. And the other advantage the British have going for them is they don't... They don't have to dedicate resources to many other places. Uh, they've resolved their big issue with the French after the French and Indian War. So they can dedicate a lot of resources into the colonies at this moment in time. That's brief, though. That only lasts until 1778. For the Americans, uh, they have a big geographic advantage. They don't really have a nerve center. It's not like you can just capture one city in the colonies and then suddenly the war is over. Um, France has a nerve center. You, you know, if... When, when the Germans captured Paris in World War II, uh, the French, you know, French kind of collapsed. Uh, so <clears throat> there's nothing like that at this time in the colonies. They also have a pretty vast interior. It is true that most of them lived along the coast, but you know, the British, if, if they're going to need to feed their troops. And often the only food is in the interior. And every time the British Army tries to march into the interior, it's very easy to attack them and wage guerrilla warfare against them. And that's a, that's a problem for the British. There's also a vast ocean that's protecting the Americans. The British have to ship everything, everything to feed and, and clothe their troops with and all the horses. All, everything has to get shipped across the ocean. And, and every time that happens, lots of things 
get destroyed. Food rots and animals die. Uh, the British tried to, at one point in time, there was one shipment, they tried to send like 550 sheep over, and I think only like 40 of them survived. Uh, at another point in time, they tried to ship over several hundred horses for the troops, and only half of them survived. So it was very typical for lots of British supplies to get destroyed in the ocean-going voyage. Um, another, another huge advantage for the Americans is the possibility of international support, most importantly the French, and when that happens that is a huge advantage. But the most important advantage of all, the single most important advantage of all, is that the colonists, the Americans, could fight defensively. They did not have to fight offensively. This is called the, the Fabian strategy, where you just... You just avoid defeat. You don't need an all-out victory. You just avoid defeat. Usually, the side that has that advantage usually wins. So the Americans have it in this war, they win. If you think about the Vietnam War, that would be the advantage that like the North Vietnamese had, and the Viet Cong had in the Vietnam War. It's the advantage that the insurgents have in Iraq, uh, that the Taliban had in Afghanistan, the Americans uh, recently, after 2001, I've had a hell of a hard time um, winning in Iraq and Afghanistan because the opponents have that advantage. The Really, the only time where a side had that advantage and didn't win is in the U.S. Civil War. The South had that advantage, and they still lost. Right? That's, that's a testament to how, um, how good the North was in the U.S. Civil War. Moving forward, let's look at some key turning points of the Revolutionary War. APUS history is not very focused on military history. We will talk about a few battles here, but when we talk about a battle, we're mainly interested in how it shaped things on the home front, uh, how it turned the tide for the public. So the Battle of Trenton, it's, uh, it's memorialized in this famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware. The year is 1776, not a good year for, for the colonists. Not a good year for the Americans. They had declared independence, but they were not winning independence. They were losing battle after battle after battle. George Washington was trying to defend New York City, and he failed. The British captured New York City uh, in 1776. As winter was setting in, he was retreating across New Jersey. He limped across the Delaware River into Pennsylvania, not too far from Philadelphia. And the British settled in, uh, stretching from New Jersey to New York City uh, during that winter. Washington was losing thousands of troops. By, by the time Christmas rolled around, he only had about 3,000 men with him. The British had 30,000. And so back in Great Britain, the feeling was the war is just about over. It's going to be a quick war. The Howe brothers, General Howe, uh, were, or Generals Howe, were, <clears throat> were being celebrated and toasted. And, and it was looking like they had basically accomplished the job. But then George Washington uh, was able to sneak across the Delaware River on, on Christmas Eve night in the middle of a snowstorm and, and then surround an encampment of British and Hessians, these are the Germans, uh, troops who had been celebrating a little bit. This is going back to the thing about maybe why it would not be a good idea to drink with a German on Christmas Eve night here. Uh, and they wake up and they realize they're surrounded and they, they end up surrendering. And what this does is it reinvigorates the American cause. It, it, there was a lot of people losing hope in the, in the possibility of independence here. But enlistments, you know, I would say almost quintupled here. Enlistments went up to about 16,000. Side note on Washington, he's also mentioned in here, we, we, you know, he, he becomes the really most popular founding father in the United States, right? Um, and a lot of that has to do with his leadership during the American Revolution. 
He's usually remembered for being this great general, but at first he was not. He was, I mean, 1776 was not a good year for him. Losing New York City was not good. Um, the Continental Congress wanted him to defend these key cities, New York City and, and Philadelphia. Um, but Washington eventually uh, would adopt the Fabian strategy where you give up. You give up control of New York City. You give up control of Philadelphia. You don't fight to the death trying to defend those cities. You... Uh, retreat, you lick your wounds, and you live to fight another day, and you hope to make the war costly for your enemy, and eventually you hope your enemy just kind of gives up and goes home. So it's not a heroic thing to often do to adopt that strategy, but I think it took Washington a while to, to realize that, but eventually he does realize that, and for that, his, it, that is an important leadership step in, uh, in helping the United States to win. The War of Independence here. He also uh, took on a kind of a controversial leadership decision during the war to inoculate his troops against smallpox. Turned out to be a pretty good decision. Um, during the Valley Forge winter, uh, he enlists the support of a German military commander who's written a book about how to train troops, and he has him come over to Valley Forge and train the troops. He's got a crazy name. It's Friedrich Wilhelm Augustus uh, Baron von Steuben, and he teaches the troops how to march and how to switch when they're marching from line to column and column to line and do that rapidly. And uh, that's, that's uh, an important step in making the Continental Army a more disciplined professional army. And then the most important thing, the single most important thing Washington does as a leader at the end of the war is retire, which set the stage that the United States did not have to worry about uh, Washington turning into an Oliver Cromwell or later like a Napoleon. Um, this was not a common thing for a leader to to help uh, a revolutionary movement win a war and then relinquish power. You know, that was something very unique about George Washington is that he was willing to surrender power at a time where he was perhaps the most powerful person in the country. Uh, and so that was, the, you know, what a noble guy he was for doing that. The Battle of Saratoga uh, is the one battle, if we're thinking of like military history, this is like the one battle that often has questions about it on the AP exam. And it has to do with the fact that after this battle, it was kind of like the green light for the French to decide to come in and help. So what had happened was the British were trying in 1777, were trying to maintain control of the Hudson River Corridor and basically separate New England, um, separate Massachusetts and Connecticut, Rhode Island, Maine. Today, you know, it would also include Vermont, New Hampshire. Separate that chunk of the country from the rest of the country. And because that's, they, they thought New England is where all the radicals are. If we can separate them, we can uh, win this war. But the problem was they had, they had different British generals who were all supposed to kind of converge on the same point, um, but they were unable to. John Burgoyne was supposed to come down from Canada and the colonists in this region end up like covering his roads with trees, slowing his group down. They had only packed so much food for a couple weeks. Uh, his men were only able to travel about one mile a day. And then he made his men promise they were not going to retreat. They did not have a supply chain behind them. Uh, so they only had two weeks of supplies. The Americans burnt fields, so there wasn't any food for the British to forage. Uh, and eventually, after starving uh, for several weeks, Burgoyne ends up surrendering. Uh, there's no British person that's able to come up and relieve him. There's no hope of rescue, and he surrenders. And, and because of this mass surrender, uh, the French decide there's maybe a chance. Maybe there's a chance for the Americans here to pull something off. So let's join them 
and then the French get involved. And so after this moment in time, the war becomes like international. The British now have to start worrying about defending themselves from the French down in the Caribbean, over in Europe, in the Mediterranean, around Gibraltar. Um, so this fighting, we'll talk about the fighting here in the United States, but there is battles between the British and the French and the Spanish and the Dutch happening um, in different hemispheres. The French come in, and we cannot forget how much, they, remember the myth is that the Americans did this all by themselves. Well, the French supplied us with like 90% of our gunpowder. If you think back to the Navigation Acts and mercantilism, the British had tried to prevent the colonies from having any manufacturing at all, meaning no ability to make gunpowder. So if you're going to go to war against an empire that has a monopoly on gunpowder, you're going to need another empire to swoop in and help you out with that manufacturing challenge, and that's where the French come in. Uh, the French also are going to force the British to allocate more men and more financial resources to more places, not just the colonies, but I mentioned earlier the Caribbean or sometimes what's called the West Indies, but also over in the Eastern Hemisphere too, the Mediterranean uh, region as well was a site of competition between the French and the British. Um, they're going to supply the colonists with the Navy that they're going to need, which is going to be crucial to win the Battle of Yorktown. And once the French get involved, then the Spanish and the Dutch also jump in too. Battle of Yorktown is the key final battle for the Americans. You can see on the map here on slide 16, the route that Cornwallis took. Uh, 1780, not a good year for the Americans. So the yeah, the Battle of Saratoga was great, but then things started to shift in the British favor again. The British captured Charleston, a port city. Um, 5,000 Americans surrendered there. That was the biggest, largest American surrender of the war. 1780 is also when Benedict Arnold became a traitor and he turned over West Point. Uh, to the British. So this is a pretty low point. Lots of troops are deserting again. Troops are, are being told that they're going to be paid, but then payments are not coming through. You start to see like a th there's a thousand Pennsylvania troops that march on the Capitol uh, in Philadelphia and, and demand payment from Congress. Okay, this, things are getting ugly here. And Britain, from Britain's point of view, they're thinking all they have to do is continue to rally the, the loyalists in the South, um, that, which are mainly located in the interior, gain some more Southern ports. They already got Charleston. Hold on to New York City. They still were holding on to that after Washington lost it in 1776. And just negotiate a peace settlement with the colonists and they could kind of hold on to what they were currently hold, holding on to. So a stalemate, the British in the British viewpoint were thinking they'll gain territory if it's a stalemate. But that all gets ruined in 1781 when Cornwallis gets cornered in pretty close to where Jamestown would be. Uh, Battle of Yorktown is the actual location of this, just down the road from Jamestown. And Cornwallis gets surrendered. The French Navy swoops in, so the British Navy can't rescue him. Uh, Washington's there. Hamilton's there. Um, and <clears throat> this is uh, Marquis de Lafayette, their French, uh, another uh, guy from France that they had become close friends with. All the key guys are there. And Cornwallis surrenders. It gives the United States greater bargaining power at the treaty table. And it also creates a lot of pressure back in Britain to like end the war. So the Whig party had been very critical of the war effort and they launch all sorts of attacks on the prime minister back in Britain saying the conduct in the war is unacceptable. We have to get out. We have to negotiate peace. So it gives the Americans the upper hand at the peace treaty table, which is where we'll, we'll end with this, the Treaty of Paris. So the challenge for the American diplomats, and you see them painted there on the left, Ben Franklin would be the, probably the key diplomat. Um, the challenge for them is to try to work out a separate deal with the French and the British. The French are hoping to gain territory because they've helped out the colonists. Okay, and the Americans realize, you know, the British still want to trade with the with the Americans, and these these colonies now they're called states. These states 
were the biggest market for this empire. So they still needed these states to buy British manufactured goods. So the British, the diplomats realize that the British are probably going to be willing to be pretty generous in this peace agreement, and they are. So they work out a separate peace deal. And the French, the French wanted to negotiate everything together. All let's all just do one treaty. Um, but the Americans kind of turn their backs on the French and work out a deal with the British. And the British, in order for doing that, the British are very generous. So they give the United States boundaries and recognize their independence. They're going to be an independent country that can stretch all the way to the Mississippi River. Incredibly generous. The Americans didn't even hardly settle anywhere beyond the Appalachian. Um, and so they, they're allowed to like double their territory. Uh, the United States was able to get access to fishing waters around Newfoundland. Um, and then lastly, the Americans in return offered to return a lot of loyalist property that had been confiscated. About 100,000 loyalists ended up leaving the country during the war. Now, there was a promise made that they could get their land back. That promise wasn't kept all that well. Um, the British are also promising to surrender a lot of the key forts they had in the interior. Now, the British don't follow up on that either. Uh, so there are some promises made in this treaty that are not kept promises. But on paper, it looked like a pretty good deal for the Americans. And, and the independence thing and the boundary thing were definitely good deals for the Americans. Um, and the Americans also promised to continue to pay British merchants. So this trade deal came with this promise that a lot of Americans were in a lot of debt to British merchants and that debt was not going to be wiped out. They were going to continue to pay up their debt uh, back to the British. So if we think about the impact of the American Revolution, we've got to th um, think about the different categories of, of its impact. So let's start with politics. In terms of politics, the Americans embraced a lot of these Enlightenment ideals about like natural rights and sovereignty with the people and representative government. Um, a lot of the rhetoric would inspire other revolutions like the French Revolution, the notion of natural rights and um, all men being created equal. Uh, that, that definitely, you're gonna see that language used in France. Um, the United States starts to become more democratic. They get rid of property requirements for voting. You see that in the chart here on, on page 19. Um, if you pause, you can study this chart a little bit more, but you're gonna notice the trend is before the revolution, the represent, re, representatives in the North and the South tended to be men of wealth. And then after the revolution, there were still men of wealth who were representatives in government, but you, you definitely saw a big increase of men who were lower class and middle class who were able to become representatives in government. So the Americans are like the first ones to ever put power into the hands of ordinary men and basically prove to the world that the whole system doesn't collapse when you do that. So <clears throat> that, was, that was a revolutionary thing in, in politics. And the office holders, because they're not men of wealth, start to get paid uh, be, to be a politician. Britain doesn't do this until like another 150 years. Um, to start paying politicians, but the Americans do it right from the get-go. So they recognize the fact that it's not always going to be wealthy men who serve in government. We want everybody to serve in government, as long as you're white and as long as you're male. Uh, and a property, you can have a little bit of property, but you know we're going to uh, gradually lower those property restrictions over time. Elections started to be contested. That was not common. Uh, usually it was like whoever the most notable citizen is, that person is the, your politician. They do not run for office. They don't campaign. They don't door-to-door -door knock. They don't give speeches. It's just you vote for them because they're honorable. And now you started to see people challenge each other to run for elections. So that was, uh, that was revolutionary. Power started to shift away from the East Coast. And you see this with like state capitals. If you ever had a hard time remembering state capitals, if you're ever asked to memorize that, it's because all these East Coast states like moved their capitals away from the big cities along the coast into the interior. 
The capital of Pennsylvania is not Philadelphia, it's Harrisburg. The capital of New York is not New York City, it went upriver to Albany. The capital of Virginia was not Norfolk, the biggest city along the coast that was moved into the interior to Richmond. The capital of North Carolina was moved into the interior to Raleigh. The capital of South Carolina was moved out of Charleston along the coast into the interior to Columbia. So that was a, you know, all of these interior people had demanded more power, more representation, and they got it by shifting the capitals in their direction. And the revolution also uplifted these ordinary, obscure people. It did not matter how much wealth you had. What mattered now was your talent, your merit, your willingness, your interest in serving. Now, you also had to be white and be a male. Um, So make sure we keep that asterisk in place. But uh, there would be some revolutionary nature to the American Revolution here. In terms of nationalism, you have to remember that the colonists did not think of themselves as a nation. So they were British. And if beyond that, they might call themselves a Virginian, a Carolinian, a Pennsylvanian, a New Yorker. But they never thought of themselves as Americans. So what if we're going to be a nation, what does it mean to be a, an American? Does, does ethnicity matter? Does language matter? Does bloodline matter? Does religion matter? What's kind of revolutionary here is that all of the answer to all of that is basically no, none of that matters. The thing that matters, if you want to call yourself an American, is that you commit yourself to the ideals of the American Revolution. Like we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that you believe in that. And if you believe in that, then you can move here and you can be part of this great country. You see that in the Constitution that's going to come down the road. If you look at the requirements for what it takes to be a representative in our government, Article 1, Section 2, Clause 2. Well, what does it take to be a representative? You've got to be 25 years old, um, live in the country for at least seven years. So you you don't even have to be born in the country. You can be born outside of the country. That's it, though. It doesn't say anything about ethnicity. It doesn't say anything about language. It doesn't say anything about religion or how many generations of your family have lived here. None of that. 25 years old, live here for seven years. You can be a representative. For Senate, let's just bump the age up to 30. And then you've lived in the you've been a citizen for nine years. That's it. So think about how unique that is on the world stage uh, at the time. Uh, Slavery. We start to see slavery begin to end in the North. It doesn't end in the South, but the contradictions to slavery become apparent during the American Revolution. A lot of the pamphlets and the declarations and the petitions that are being written around this time are talking about how the colonists are being treated like slaves. And if you're a slave, you listen to that rhetoric and say, oh, it's, it's interesting to hear that you also have a problem with slavery. Let's, let's maybe talk more about this. So there are some places that begin to end slavery, especially in the North. There's a famous trial in Massachusetts, the trial of Mumbet. She sues for freedom based on the documents, the state constitution of Massachusetts. And she says, you talk about liberty and equality in this constitution. Am I not titled to liberty and equality? So is all men being uh, you know, created equal? Am I a human being? Can I, can I be entitled to those terms as well? And the, and the court rules in her favor, and they basically get rid of uh, slavery in Massachusetts right around the time of the revolution. Other states pass gradual emancipation laws, and, I, and by gradual, I mean really gradual. So on the map there, you're seeing it looks like New York ended slavery in 1799, but you would still see slaves in New York until 1840s. So the, these gradual emancipation laws would say things like uh, a slave born after this date uh, can still be a slave until they turn whatever, uh, but their children are free. So you could have somebody born pretty close to that date and still remain enslaved way into the 1840s. Um, 
but it's on the road to ending, okay? It does remain intact in the South. You do see a lot of people, like the quote that you're seeing on, on slide 21 here, using rhetoric of the American Revolution to argue for the ending of slavery, and that does work in the North. In terms of the impact on Native Americans, the American Revolution is not good. Uh, the British had been attempting to achieve some level of coexistence with the Native Americans. The Proclamation of 1763 and the Quebec Act were great news to the Native Americans. They were basically going to be able to have their own country and not have to worry about incursion from the colonists. These angered the colonists. And once they were able to become independent, they could ignore these arrangements and then begin to move into the interior. And it wasn't a peaceful movement. There was a lot of ethnic cleansing that kind of became integral to this independence era movement. And the Paxton boys, you can Google that, uh, is a good example of that. About a third of the Iroquois nation ends up dying during the American Revolution. Um, it's not just warfare, but there's disease outbreaks also that, that are going to kill a lot of Native Americans. Uh, so as a result of the American Revolution, Eastern North Carolina, Eastern, excuse me, Eastern North America pretty much becomes like constructed as a white non-native, non-Indian nation. There's going to be no place for Native Americans in this new country. The United States adopts a conquest theory um, and basically says the only way you can continue to be here uh, is if you fully submit to the U.S. government. The only way for the United States, for the Indians to keep any land is to fully submit to the United States. And so what that meant for a lot of Indians is that they began, they tried, they had been trying to already incorporate a lot of European ideas and objects and culture. They had already adapted a lot of that in their own culture and tradition, and they're going to continue to. But as we're going to find out, like with the example of the Cherokee, even by the 1830s, it doesn't work. Uh, so even though they're told you just submit and do everything like we do, we'll let you stay um, in the long run that after a couple decades, those promises are broken also. And you can see in the contrast between these two maps on slide 22 and slide 23 um, how quickly the Americans did shift then into the interior and quickly just poured beyond the Appalachian Mountains and took over the land um, that was occupied by Native Americans. Uh, in terms of impact on women, women did play a key role in the revolution. They, they were the ones who made the boycotts work. They, they supplied troops with clothing. They did a lot of fundraising for the troops. There were some isolated voices that began to challenge men in power. Abigail Adams is famous for asking her husband, John, to remember the ladies at the Continental Congress. Lucy Knox's husband, Henry Knox, was a general in the Continental Army, and she wrote a letter to him and said, you know, uh, Henry, when you come home, I'm wondering who's going to be the general of the house. It was kind of a little joke uh, that she had there. So there are some isolated voices. Women don't, they do not gain a whole lot of political rights out of this. There is one exception to that. In New Jersey, they gain the right to vote in New Jersey, briefly. Uh, but that is ended in 1807. Women were voting, a lot of women were voting for the Federalist Party. And when the Democratic Republican Party came to power, they decided to get rid of uh, women's ability to vote because of that. So by and large, women do not gain a whole lot of political rights from the American Revolution. Divorces do increase. Women are asserting themselves more there. And we do see a lot more of out-of-wedlock births. They're, they double around the time of the revolution. Republican motherhood is the key phrase. You want to remember Republican motherhood. That's the phrase you want to remember in terms of how did the Re American Revolution impact women. Um, they didn't gain political rights, but they could be in control of politics within the home. And so women were thought to have an important responsibility in this new Republican form of government. They might not be able to vote, but they had a political role to play. And that the role is that they should instill 
Republican virtues in their children, especially their male children. Women were thought to be better at, than men at like the virtues of love and benevolence and that they should try to instill those virtues in their young sons. And women would use that and say, well, if it's true that we should teach our young boys these virtues, then shouldn't we receive a better education? So in the North, you started to see some women's academies start to pop up uh, that focused on women's education. And they would train young women to be good wives and mothers. So they're not going to challenge the patriarchy in any way, but they are going to offer women a general education that includes instruction in grammar and math and history and geography. Again, with the hopes that they're able to use that information to teach their young sons how to be good Republican leaders in the future. Religious freedom uh, is a step forward for religious freedom during the American Revolution. At first, there's not a whole lot of separation between church and state in what would become the United States. So lots of states, even once we declared independence and these colonies became states, these states, when they crafted their state constitutions, they kept an official established church. Massachusetts and Connecticut kept the Congregational Church, the official tax-supported church. Um, some states had multiple established churches, Maryland, South Carolina, and Georgia. Uh, there were several states that required politicians to be Christian. Some said you got to be a Protestant. Some said you, can be a, a, you just have to be Christian. Some said you just have to believe in one God. But you can read the list of the abbreviations there. New Hampshire, Connecticut, New Jersey, North Carolina, Georgia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, all had some form of that. But then there's a turning point. Thomas Jefferson, this was an incredibly important issue to him. He was in Virginia. Virginia's official church was the Anglican Church. Jefferson's religious beliefs are quite complicated. I, I would hesitate to call him a, a deeply religious individual. Uh, he had watched the Anglicans discriminate heavily against Baptists, but also Presbyterians. And he thought enough was enough. And so he worked for a big chunk of his life to try to get Virginia to pass a religious freedom statute. And he ended up getting that done in 1786. So this is after the American Revolution. Um, the treaty will officially be adopted in 1783. This is three years after uh, the treaty ends there. And if you look at his gravestone, this is where Jefferson's buried. Remember, Jefferson was the third president of the United States. And so when he died, he had some time to think about, like, what do I want? What am I most proud of? What are my most proud accomplishments? He said, author of the Declaration of Independence, father of the University of Virginia, and also author of the Statute of Virginia's Religious Freedom Law. That's it. That, he doesn't say anything about being president of the United States. Those are the things he's proud of. So that religious freedom thing was huge to him. And after Virginia passes that, lots of other states uh, push for religious freedoms. And so we start to see more and more states get rid of their officially tax-supported established church. South Carolina, Maryland, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, they all eventually go in that direction. We also see more toleration of Catholics slowly, gradually, and uh, Jews. So there were some states that had laws that said you could not hold office if you were a Catholic or a Jew. And um, that, that broadens afterwards. On a side note, this is kind of a contentious issue in the, in the field of history, uh, is to what extent was the United States a Christian nation? I'm, I'm, there's a picture of a book here called Was America Founded as a Christian Nation by John Fia. Uh, a great book, by the way. And John Fia does a good job making, showing the evidence it's used on both sides of this argument. So for the people who argue that the United States was founded as a Christian nation, their evidence is usually based off of, well, if you look at New England's founding, New England was definitely Massachusetts Bay Colony, Jonathan Edwards, um, Jonathan Winthrop. That was a deeply, deeply religious area. And religion was vital to their founding. 
There are references to God and the Creator and the divine in the Declaration of Independence. There's about four references uh, to God in the Declaration of Independence. There are some founding fathers who are deeply, deeply religious. Jonathan, John Adams would be one of them. Um, mo- it is true that most of the nation, most of the United States, was Protestant uh, at the time of the, uh, of the founding. And as we just mentioned, there were lots of states initially that did require their office holders to be Christian and to take some type of religious oath in order to hold office. So New Hampshire, Connecticut, New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, North Carolina, Georgia um, did do that. Now, on the, on the flip side, if we look at the Constitution, there really is no, there's references to God in the Declaration, but there's no references to God in the Constitution. And if we ask, was it founded as a Christian nation, there's certainly no references to Christianity in the Constitution. Um, there are references to God in things, but if we if we if we're being honest about what the term Christian means, Christianity usually if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you have to believe in like the teachings of the New Testament and Jesus, and you have to believe in the Holy Trinity. Um, but we don't see any references to Jesus or any you know the Trinity or the New Testament stuff in any of the founding documents. It's mainly just like God. Uh, and then, yes, there were founders that were, were religious, but there's a, some pretty big names that are not very religious. Franklin was kind of a deist. Uh, Jefferson had some serious questioning of religion throughout his life. Washington did attend church, but he was not a very involved member. He never took communion at his church. Uh, so there, there's some pretty complex uh, religious beliefs amongst the founders there. So ultimately, what John Fia says is, What do you mean? Like all of these terms are pretty loaded terms. In order to argue that the United States or America was founded as a Christian nation, what do you mean when you say America? Like, are you mainly just talking about the North New England region? Um, Because, yeah, religion was important up there, but it maybe wasn't so important in other spots. What do you mean when you say founded? Are you talking about the Declaration of Independence? Are you talking about the Constitution? Both of them are founding documents. Or maybe you're talking about the colonial era back in the 1600s. So what do you mean when you say founded? If you, if you want to argue that the United States was founded as a Christian nation, you kind of have to narrowly define what, what you're talking about when you say founded. Christian, what do you mean when you say Christian? You kind of have to take a really broad interpretation of Christian. Uh, there are references to God and things, but there are not many references to Jesus in a lot of the documents. And then lastly, what do you mean by nation? Do you mean the government? Do you mean the people? Uh, do, do you mean the states? Do you mean the colonies? When, when are we looking at in time? Who are we looking at when we say nation? So, so that's, that's the trick of this debate. It's, it's not, a, not an easy thing to settle until, unless you can kind of agree on a, a lot of those terms. Last question deals with the impact on France, Haiti, and Latin America. This one's a quick one. Um, yeah, the American Revolution influenced all these. The French monarch that supported us eventually went bankrupt in supporting the American Revolution. The, the revolutionaries in France used a lot of the rhetoric of the American Revolution. The Declaration of Independence definitely influenced the documents you're seeing here on slide 28, the Declaration of the Rights of Man, the Declaration of the Rights of Woman. And uh, if we look at the Haitian Revolution, the Latin American Revolutions, those were very similar to the American Revolution, and they were both like trying to overthrow a colonial empire. And, and rid themselves of the of, of being a colony. Okay, so that's where we will uh, bring this to an end. Now remember, take a look at the possible short answer questions on the review document. We're on topic two here, so look at anything that has the number two next to it. And that should do it for our review of topic two.